Hey, for the last few weeks, we've been celebrating God's work in our church family. Uh, As many of you know, two years ago, we launched this initiative called Greater. We've been asking the Lord to grow our faith as individuals and certainly together as a church family. And there was this goal, this little goal of raising seven and a half million dollars together so that we keep making disciples, reaching our cities and change the world. And from kids to students uh, to worship to outreach to groups, like making disciples is what we do every day as a church. I mean, it really is kind of the fuel uh, behind our ministry. Reach our cities means equipping our facilities so that we can best serve the communities that we've been called to. We know that we need to make some physical improvements at our Carmel campus. We've been looking for a new home uh, for our Noblesville campus. Been looking and will continue uh, to look for that new location. Change the world is generosity beyond the walls of this church so that we can support other ministries that are helping people find their way back to God. We are 23 months uh, into our 24-month event together, and in spite of a pandemic, in spite of a lot of uncertainty, together as a church family, we've given close to $7 million together these past couple of years. It's pretty cool and exciting. Uh, So amazing to see how the Lord's working through you and through our church together. We're still praying and searching again for a new Noblesville building, but you know what? Two years ago, we had no money in the bank saved uh, for a new facility. Today, we've got $2.7 million that we're saving and just waiting uh, for the Lord to to provide that for us. Uh, Last week, we handed out an annual report. Uh, You might have gotten a copy of one of those that just kind of gives you a picture of how we're managing uh, and investing these funds as a church, these funds that you've given. This report also highlights highlighted some stories of lives that are being changed around Genesis and beyond Genesis. If you didn't get one of those, you can pick it up at the Info Hub today on your way out. It's also on our website too. You can find a digital copy uh, as well. Today, I want to remind you how God is using this greater event to make an impact beyond the walls of Genesis. Genesis has always been a generous church. And as I think about the 18-some years of Genesis now, I've been here for 14 of those. Like It's been really encouraging to me to just watch the generosity of our church uh, together grow over the years. And uh, greater is just one more opportunity to be even more generous, to give even beyond what we would do in a typical year. And so this is kind of fun. If you want to talk about something to celebrate today, since March 2020, two years We've given away as a church family over $658,000 to other ministries. Isn't that cool? Can we just one more time just celebrate that? And uh, that, that's money that we've been telling you about this. It's money to places like the Cooper House and their service right here in Noblesville and Hamilton County. It's Shepherd Community Center uh, in Indianapolis that Steve was talking about. It's Reality Church, a brand new church in Miami that we're helping to financially fund. We had a team down there this past week. They just got back late. Well, early this morning, uh, their flight was delayed, but served down there for a few days. We've been able to bless ministries over the uh, missionaries these past couple of years, partners serving in places like Scotland, Myanmar, Ukraine, and the Caribbean. We have found creative ways to just say thank you to our local schools. Again, thank you, Genesis. Your, your faith, uh, your sacrifice, uh, your generosity is going a really long way together. And it's fun how the Lord, as Bethany was talking about, can use a family in a really powerful and special way. And so we been able to be a blessing to others as a family. And I'm excited to announce uh, one more, another generous gift this morning, uh, and this time for 
relief efforts in the Ukraine. And uh, you may remember that as a result of our Christmas offering in December, we were able to send Last Bell Ministries, they serve in Ukraine, $10,000 for a new roof. Well, we recently let them know that they are free to use those funds, uh, however they see best fit right now. Uh, We support them monthly. We're going to continue supporting them monthly, and we are ready and prepared to help them and to serve them as their needs arise. But this past week, we made a gift of $20,000 to a, a ministry, a worldwide ministry called Convoy of Hope. And they are already on the ground. They have established a refugee relief center in Poland where they are serving refugees every single day. And so this $20,000 gift will be used to help feed and provide the needs of those that are escaping Ukraine right now. And again, none of it happens without you. And so thank you, Genesis. Thank you for your giving and your support. Uh, we, we do. We got a lot to celebrate. Um, We've got a lot to celebrate as the Lord just continues to work through our church. We're going to do it tonight. We've got a worship night tonight. Steve will tell you a little bit more about that, where we're going to worship together. We'd love to invite you back at 630 right here at our Noblesville campus. Um, I'm going to pray with you in just a moment. I also want to point out next Saturday, we're hosting a prayer walk at both of our campuses at 9 a.m. So I'd love to invite you back here again next Saturday morning at 9. We're going to spend a few minutes together in the lobby praying together, and then we're going to send you out in groups just to pray in different parts of our community. And we'll give you a prayer guide to do that, but that's next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. We just keep praying for how the Lord wants to use our church, and it'll just keep growing our influence right here in Noblesville. But let me pray uh, before we continue. God, thank you for your work in our lives, with our faith, and through this church family. And you are the most generous person ever. And uh, we're just doing our best to model what you have modeled for us, and that you are a God that gives, and you give good gifts, the most important gift being your son, Jesus. And thank you, Lord. Thank you that we've been able to extend these blessings to other ministries these past couple of years. We want to do so much more. And we thank you specifically this morning that we can give this gift for relief efforts around Ukraine. Father, I pray that you would use these gifts to provide food, to provide blankets and clothing, that through these gifts, Lord, you will meet needs, but most importantly, that people will encounter the love and the power of Jesus Christ and the power that changes all things. And we want to see revival in our country. We want to see revival all around the world, and especially in Ukraine right now. We are praying for an end to the war there, Father, that you would change hearts and lives and that people would turn to Jesus. We, we speak the name of Jesus. Uh, Father, we are trusting in your power. Have your way. Have your way in this world, have your way in our lives today, and certainly in this room right now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've got a Bible this morning, turn to John chapter 5. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, the New Testament being the second half of your Bible. Uh, The Gospel of John, we've been looking together at John these last uh, couple of months and are going to keep in it. But John chapter 5 today, if you're turning there, I feel the need to set something straight. Uh, Because last week I was preaching over at Carmel, it has come to my understanding that Steve Wallen stood on this stage and told you all that I can be a bit of a cheapskate, especially uh, when it comes to travel, that I have been known to go on vacation and even go as far as pack a suitcase full of food. And it is true. I have done that. (laughs) 
more than once. In fact, I remember Jenny and I, we had the privilege of traveling to Aruba. We packed a suitcase full of food with all of our breakfast and all of our lunch items. And if you don't believe me, there is an immigration official in Aruba that can testify to a really long conversation he had with us about things you can and can't take across the border, evidently. And, uh, and so he can prove that to be true. But just so that you know that I am willing to spend money on my family when we go on vacation, five years ago, we went to Alaska. We were in Fairbanks. We stayed at this hotel. We got at this hotel and realized that you actually had to pay for the continental breakfast, like $15 a person for bagels and coffee and cereal and stuff like that. And so here's what I did. The next morning when we woke up, I walked one mile along the shoulder of a four-lane highway to the nearest grocery store. I bought $40 worth of groceries and carried them back for my family, and they fed us for the next three days, all right? All right, you know, for breakfast at least, because there are some things I'm not willing to spend money on, and one of them is a $15 continental breakfast. But today, John chapter 5, and it begins with a group of people who have gathered in a specific place to wait, to watch, and to hope for something life-changing to take place for them. What we're going to see is that Jesus is going to enter the scene here. He's going to heal someone's physical disability, which is amazing, but Jesus is going to use this physical healing to address a dangerous spiritual disability that has the potential of, 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 of paralyzing every single one of us. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, here's what John writes. He says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And if you go to Israel, you can see it for yourself today. All right, it's there. They started uncovering it in the late 19th century. And uh, here is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. The, the holiest of places would be for the Jews, but they're not allowed on the Temple Mount because it's occupied by the Muslims. The closest the Jews can get is the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall that you've seen pictures of, of people praying at. But just to the east of the Temple Mount is a place called the Pool of Bethesda, located just north of the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. And here's a picture of this of a portion of the Pool of Bethesda. I had the privilege of sitting here and taking this in, in 2017. And then and also a picture of a model depicting what it likely looked like in John chapter 5. And again, John says it was covered by five colonnades or porches, and apparently it was a popular place for a specific group of people to gather. Verse 3, John writes, here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. I want you to try and picture this with me, if you will. There's this massive space, covered area, filled with sick, hurting people, the blind, those who couldn't walk, and some who were completely paralyzed. Can you even imagine how sad of a place this must have been? My, my guess is that most people avoided going near the pool if they could help it. They stayed away altogether, but not Jesus. Because look where Jesus is. He chooses the pool where the sick people are, those who are waiting, watching, and hoping for something big to happen. What were they waiting for? 
verse 4 says, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The, the first one into the pool, after each disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, in your Bible, there's a really good chance this is italicized or in parentheses, or maybe it's even placed as a footnote because it's a detail that was added later. It gives us some insight to the legend surrounding Bethesda. Healing pools were common in antiquity. Did they work? Unlikely. Uh, probably nothing more than really just a superstition. But something positive must have happened at some point in history that would have caused people to believe that an angel could come down from heaven and stir the waters from time to time. And again, the first person in the water after the waters would st were stirred would be healed. Verse 5, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, asked him, do you want to get well? We never learn this man's name, just that he's been waiting for 38 years to be healed. That's a really, really long time to wait. Some of you know that kind of waiting. Some of you have been praying for something that long, if not longer. You've, you've been waiting for a really really long time to be healed or to see God heal someone in your life. You've been waiting for a really, really long time to meet someone, uh, to be in a relationship. You've been waiting and asking God to do something miraculous. Maybe even at times doesn't seem that miraculous. It wouldn't be that big of a deal for God to do it, and there's been little to no movement, and the waiting and the silence has caused you to question things that you're not proud of, maybe your faith. Uh, maybe the goodness of God, because waiting is hard. This man has been waiting for 38 years. Call him helpless, call him hopeless for sure. And yet Jesus saw him, and he knew his condition. And just as Jesus saw this man, I, I want to point out today that he sees you too. That, that I, can't, I, can't, I can't always answer the question of why does God make us wait? Why does he seem to delay? Why at times does he seem so far off? But but he is there. He is close. He's not far. He, he sees you. He knows what you're going through. He, he may seem distant, but the truth is that he's closer than you realize. Somehow, even in this crowd, Jesus saw this man. He went to him. He knew his condition, and he went over to him, and he asked him the question, do you want to get well? Which, honestly, I think sounds a little awkward right? A little unsympathetic considering the man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. And as I've read this story, I've tried to ask myself, tried to get my mind around Jesus. And, and you know, can't you just, like, of course, Jesus. Like, of course he wants to, to get well. Like, why did Jesus ask? I mean, we've seen this even the last couple of weeks of Jesus asking some very awkward, sort of unsympathetic kind of questions. But what if his question, like in these other scenarios that we've looked at these past couple of weeks, is actually the perfect question. Because of course Jesus knows the man wants to be healed, but like so many of the other encounters that Jesus has had, it, Jesus looks at this man and he sees not only his physical needs, but he sees the deeper, internal, maybe a more important one too. Look at how the man responds. He said to Jesus, Sir, 
I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. It's interesting that when Jesus asked this man if he wants to be well, his answer isn't yes, but instead, I've got no one to help me. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but there's this interesting pattern that has developed and will continue as we get deeper into John's gospel. In chapter two, there's a wedding and there's no wine. Last week was a Samaritan woman who said, I have no husband. In chapter five, we find a lame man saying, I've got no one to help me. And up to this point, we've seen how Jesus, in his compassionate and loving way, is able to to find a way to go so far beyond meeting just what appears to be the obvious need. No, in each situation, Jesus is going to reveal to us that he is the Messiah, that he is God's chosen one, the one who has come to put our lives, our broken lives, back together. For 38 years, this man's body has been broken. And for a long time, he's been by the pool waiting and, and watching and hoping for a chance to be healed. But here's what Jesus knows and what I think we're supposed to see as well. And that is that this man has been hoping in all of the wrong things. I call it a a misplaced hope. It's a misplaced hope. You know, this, this man, he kept thinking about the healing waters of the pool and who could blame him? But at this point in his life, he seems to be all out of hope. And so he says to Jesus, there's no one who can help me. But here comes Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him in verse eight? Jesus tells him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. A a short, simple, gutsy, bold command. And to the man's credit, at least from what we can tell, he didn't push back or argue. No, he responded in faith. And he stood to his feet for the first time in 38 years. But he wasn't just healed. He stood up. He picked up his mat his bed, all that he had ever known. I, I grabbed this this morning from my son's room, my, uh, my son's run, and so they have these yoga mats that they do their stretches on. And I don't know what the man of 38 years, what his mat looked like, but from what I can tell and from the research that I've done, I mean, it, it, was, it was a part of his livelihood. I mean, he, he spent more time with his mat than he spent time with anyone. I mean, he spent hours a day, you know, lying on this mat. I mean, this mat was his well-being. This mat was his only sense of comfort. I mean, in many ways, this mat was his identity. It's who he was. 38 years of suffering, but in an instant, He stood up, he picked up his mat, and he walked away. It's another incredible miracle that we see in John. But but I believe this man's healing is just the beginning of what John wants us to take away from this account. Because as we're going to see, as you continue reading, Jesus healing this man is actually a catalyst for a spiritual confrontation, a confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders. Let let me reread the account of this man's healing for you so you can see it for yourself. Let's begin in in verse 8. Again, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his man and walked. And this is the part where you'd expect John to say, and guess what? A pool party broke out at the pool of Bethesda and everyone was healed by Jesus. But this isn't what John records. Now he continues. He says, the day on which this took place 
was a Sabbath. And any time you read in the Gospels of something taking place on the Sabbath, it means that there's more going on than you realize. It says, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. This is where the story really starts to pick up because for starters, again, John tells us that the man was healed on the Sabbath, which is the day of the week that the Jewish people, people like Jesus, had set aside for centuries, commanded by God to rest from the work so that they could focus all of their attention on God. But over the centuries, Jewish religious leaders developed their own rigid set of kind of Sabbath rules, 39 categories of rules, in fact, describing things you could not do on the Sabbath. Would you like to guess what one of those rules was? You're not supposed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. What's the healed guy doing? He's carrying his mat as he runs into the Jewish leaders. Do they care that he has been healed after 38 years of suffering? No way. All they can see is this guy breaking the rule. And if you keep reading, the man responds to the religious leaders basically saying, hey, look. The guy came up to me, asked me if one if I wanted to get well. I stood up. There was strength in my legs. Of course, I rolled up my mat and I walked away. Apparently, he's not aware of your thou shalt not carry your mat sort of a command. And so don't get mad at me. Take it up with Jesus. Look at what happens next. Verse 15, it says, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. It's interesting that John chapter five begins about with a man, a story about a man who is physically disabled. But now we begin to see that it's possible to have spiritual disabilities too. These religious leaders suffered of a blindness of their own, a paralysis in their own hearts, and so instead of celebrating with the man, anger erupts, but not towards the man. They're going to focus their attention. They're going to focus their fury on Jesus. And listen to Jesus' response to them. Because apparently Jesus comes along, they encounter one another. And in verse 17, we read, In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work, at his work, to this very day. And I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, obviously, there are always two sides to have a story, right? And, and that could be the case here because on the one hand, if someone claims to be equal with God, it's probably best to assume they need some, some professional help, some psychiatric assistance, unless they've been given the ability to heal. And if they can do that, then it's probably best to, to at least hear them out. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day had already made up their minds about him and who he claimed to be. And later in this chapter, Jesus calls them out for being religious hypocrites and phonies. Look what he says of them in verses 39 and 40, if you skip over some verses. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I think the pancakes are really working in some of the kids. Maybe the syrup, actually, right? But that's all right. I love the noise in the building. But strong words here, all right? From the mouth of Jesus and directed at the very people who from at least the outside appear that they appear that they've got it all together, at least spiritually. And I can't help but wonder how many of us 
need to be confronted with a similar realization. How often I do. You know, think about how often we work so hard to look the part. How often we'll do everything that we can to make it appear that we've got it all together, we, or at least give that impression. Like the truth is you can carry your Bible, you can come into a service like this and bow your head in prayer and make it here most Sundays. And if we're not careful, like the religious leaders, miss the point. We can miss the point because according to Jesus, these men are no better off than the superstitious crowd of people waiting to get into the pool of a Bethesda be healed. And so by calling them out, Jesus helps us to see how both groups in this story, the, the, the physically disabled and the religiously proud, are really struggling with a similar ailment. And that's a misplaced hope. Uh, putting hope in, in all the wrong things. The people at the pool of Bethesda were, were trusting in a historical myth that said you could be the first person in the pool and be healed. The religious leaders were trusting in their own hope and effort, their own personal performance as a way of making them right with God. Be honest, we're not much different. If I'm honest, I'm not always that much different. We're all guilty of looking for hope for things and well, in things other than Jesus. We, we do it when things are bad and, and it feels like the world is against us, but, but also when things are going really well and we'd say, you know what, I feel kind of on top of the world. We, we put our hope in anything and everything. We put our hope in money and possessions and the things that we can save, the stuff that we acquire. We find hope in what we can achieve and again and what we can attain for ourselves. We'll say, you know, sure, I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not bad as bad as someone else or, you know, at least I go to church or at least I read my Bible or at least I give or at least I serve or something. You know, again, at least I'm not as bad as, as that person. Here, here's the problem that John ultimately reveals for us and that is that hope in anything other than Jesus is no hope at all. Your hope, my hope, Ultimately, in anything other than Jesus is no hope at all. Jesus came to offer a completely different kind of hope, and Jesus hints at this hope when he heals the man at the pool. Look, at, look back at verse 8 again one more time when, when Jesus healed this man. Then Je it says, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Emphasis on the words get up. This is kind of interesting. N.T. Wright points out how the Greek word translated get up is also used regularly through the New Testament to describe the resurrection of the dead. And so with that in mind, I want you to listen to what Jesus says later as he's addressing the religious leaders in, in verse 24. Pick it up in verse 24. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life, all right? Remember, Jesus has already uh, offended the religious leaders by claiming that he's equal with God. Now he's building on that claim by saying that he has the power to lead people from death to life, all right? To, to actually offer forgiveness, to offer his eternal life. He continues, he says, very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And verse 28, he continues by saying, do not be amazed at this. 
For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Throughout this chapter, we find Jesus confronting the dangers of misplaced hope. And he goes all the way here, all right? He talks about the 100% of the conversation, bringing up death and specifically what happens in the end when he returns. And Jesus boldly and confidently expresses how he is the only hope we have. He is the only hope worth trusting. He is the only hope that we have for forgiveness. He is the only hope that we have for, for healing, for eternal life, both now and our time here on this earth and ultimately in heaven where we will be with him one day when our life on earth is over. Look again what he says in verse 28. He says, a time is coming when everyone in their graves will hear his voice and come out. What kind of people go into graves? Dead people do, right? Well, what Jesus is doing here is he is confronting the reality that all of us will eventually, unless he returns before, all of us will eventually die physically. But here again, he is letting us know, he is emphasizing that he has come to offer the hope of eternal life. And just like he did with the man that was healed in the story, there will be a day. It is coming where he will command all of the dead to rise. And on that day, again, the dead will rise from their graves. And according to his word, according to the truth of God's word, all of those who have been made righteous through faith in him will rise to eternal life and will spend the rest of eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven while those who on this earth have rejected him will rise to an eternal condemnation eternally separated from God and hell. And I don't say that to intimidate you. I don't say that to offend you. I say it only because Jesus said it. And I believe Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the son of God. And he proved that by, he proved that by eventually allowing the religious leaders to take his life, to have their way. At the end of God's, John's gospel, he talks about how Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified uh, and was killed. And just like the religious leaders had planned, but what they hadn't planned on was that God was going to raise Jesus from the dead three days later, just as he promised. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved once and for all that he doesn't just have the power to heal things like physical disabilities. He proved that he has the power to conquer things like sin and death and guilt and shame. And he proved that he has the power to give eternal life to anyone who will trust him and put their faith in him this side of death. What are you putting your hope in today? What's your hope? What, what, what is that thing that you just keep going back to and clinging to, saying, this is all of the hope that I will ever need? We are all vulnerable. We're all guilty of a misplaced hope of finding confidence, of finding life, of finding satisfaction, of of finding our faith in things other than Jesus. And we live in a world that is getting darker and darker by the day. You could say that all of us right now are waiting, we're watching, and we're hoping for something to change in our lives. I, I think you could make a case that this mat, or like the mat that we see in the story, well, we all got one. 
And every single one of us has that one thing, or we've got some things that we quickly turn to to find things like faith, to find things like hope, to find things like satisfaction and security. We'll turn to our relationships and think, you know, if I could just have that or if I could just keep this under control or if this will just work out as I've planned, well, that, that's all I need. Like, that's the, that's the faith that I need. Or if my health, if, if, if I can keep my health in order, or if I can, if I can find some healing, or, or maybe this drug, or, or this one thing, you know, I, that, that's all I need. That's, that's all the hope that I ever need. I, I find security in things like that. It so quickly becomes our money, our possessions, the things that we acquire. We'll say, you know, if I just had a little bit more, I, we get addicted to things. We... We put our hope in things other than Jesus Christ. And it's, it's a misplaced hope. It, it, it's not going to stand. I think we create a faith system of our own. I mean, for some of you here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe you have, or maybe you're just choosing to ignore it. You've, you've got it worked out in your mind. Of, well, this is how I think things will go. But you got to ask yourself, I mean, do I, do I really believe that? Is, or is that a false hope? Is that a misplaced hope? The, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel is this, that hope in anything other than Jesus is no hope at all. And when we put our hope in the things of this world, anything other than Christ, like we're, we're no different than the sick man at the pool of Bethesda. And so I don't know what it is for you today. I don't know what you quickly turn to. I don't know what you're clinging to. I don't know what bit of like, well, if I can just control this, well, then that's everything that I, I don't know what it is for you. But is it a misplaced hope? And is there a better hope? A man... Jesus, who comes to you today and he says, I got something better. I've got something that's proven. And here's what I invite you to do that Jesus would say, I want you to get up today. I want you to roll up that mat. That one thing that you've been putting so much faith and so much trust and hope in that's not going to stand. And I want you to take it and I want you to follow me. I want you to put your faith in me and follow me. Jesus has come to offer every single one of us his living, eternal hope, and it begins with faith in him. And you can respond. You can respond to his invitation to you today. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you made a way through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior that Jesus in his love and compassion, he sees us for who we are. He sees the pain in our lives. He sees those things that we so quickly, that I so quickly place my faith and trust in. And Jesus, you offer a better way. You are all of the hope that we need. You are the answer for what we need. Lord, we invite you to have your way in this place today. That you would just speak your words to us that you would lead us to healing, that you would lead some to salvation, that you would increase our faith and our trust in you. Jesus, you are our hope. You are all that we need.
You are all that this world needs. Have your way in our lives today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us?